Yeah, you can clap. That's kind of cool. Not much more needs to be said this morning. Thank you, Steve, for sharing your, your testimony. I, having Steve share that was really important. As, as we, uh, John just said, we've been in this long series. It's been 15 months that we've been in Matthew. And we haven't covered every single verse of Matthew, but we've covered the high points of Jesus' teaching through the book of Matthew. And over that, the last 15 or 16 months, I, I can't tell you how many different conversations, and I know it's not just related to looking at Matthew, but, but it's the journey that God has our church on, is, is that I've had multiple conversations where people have said to me in different contexts that until we went through the book of Matthew, and until we went through and looked at these different things, until I, I went down to the Dream Center, or I went to Haiti, or I went to, into Laundry Lover, or as a part of community group, I never knew what it really meant to be a Christian. I had an idea, and this is what most people would say to me, and a lot of us think is being a Christian is going to church every Sunday or at least two Sundays out of four in a month, and that's pretty good, giving a little bit of money, and then trying to be a good person. That's, that's the definition that most, a lot of us work with, that that's kind of, even if we don't say that, like if someone said, hey, write out a definition of Christianity, most of us wouldn't like write that on a piece of paper, but if you and I look at our lives, many times that's what, Christianity gets reduced to. And then when you begin to serve outside of yourself, you begin to encounter what Jesus says in his own words, you realize, oh, wait a second. It's so much more than what I thought it was. It's not just about compartments of my life. It's about all of my life. It's not just giving a little. It's about giving all of my life. It's not just about serving a little bit to check off the box. It's about serving with all of my life. And Jesus wants us to be all in. And so as we've gone through the, this series, some of you are like, oh, I'm really bummed there's no more in Matthew. And others are like, please, can we get out of Matthew already? They're, you know, your Bible's falling apart, right? Because you keep going to Matthew. But before we jump into the, the final passage that we're going to look at, the final kind of message this morning in this series, just wanted to reflect for just a moment where we've come through in the last 15 months. So 15 months ago, so back like September, in August into September of last year, we started in Matthew 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And in that passage, Jesus talks about and defines clearly for you and I what it looks like to actually live the life of a disciple. That's what this series has been. It's called Disciple. And so we talked about, you know, that really a lot of it is it's upside down. The the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5 are really backwards in their counterculture, the way that we think. And then going through chapters 5 and chapter 6, chapter 7, when Jesus starts talking about we think it's all about the outward and he talks about the inward and and challenges us in, in the way that we think. And so he describes for us how to live our life. And then we jumped into Matthew chapter 10 which didn't get any easier. Jesus sends out his disciples and talks about mission and what it looks like for us to be about God's mission in the world. And then we jumped into Matthew 13, which Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, which is bigger than the church. And that, that's, for some of us, that was like mind-blowing. Wait a second, there's something bigger than the church? I always thought it was always about the church. But it's about God's kingdom, which is present and active all around us and through us and in our job and in our home and in our neighborhood that God is at work And then we got to Matthew 18, which Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to have to learn how to live with each other, how to get along with each other. You're going to need to learn to live in community and talked about how we we are accountable and how when we influence people and how we correct people to help them move their way back towards Jesus. And then then now we've been in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, and we've been talking about Jesus' return and how we know that's coming, but talking about the details. And in the last few weeks, really, Jesus has been saying, listen, you need to know these things to be prepared because I'm going to return, and you don't want to be caught off guard. You don't want to be unprepared for the future. So we've walked all through that, and what we've, what we've experienced in the last 15 months is if you, there's other parts in, in the Gospels where Jesus' teaching are re, is repeated, but we have gotten the core of what Jesus has said in his own words about who he is and what it means to follow him. And that's why we've been on this, because it's not, it's not, okay, somebody's opinion, it's not a book, it's Jesus, red letters, in the scriptures, what he said, defined for you and I, and the decision that you and I have to come with, come to as an individual is, what am I going to do now that I know? Now that I know what Jesus has said about what it looks like to follow him, what it means to be a disciple, what he's going to do when he returns, the anticipation of him coming back, what am I going to do with that? Because now we're accountable. That's the one thing that's kind of a bummer about knowledge, once you know. Now you're responsible for it. So some like, man, I wish I would have skipped more Sundays in this series. I wouldn't have known. But following Jesus is much broader and much bigger than you and I sometimes even think it is, or maybe the life that we've lived. So understanding that this morning, we're going to look at a passage which 
we've, I've read this passage and I haven't taught on it yet here, but many times, and you've probably heard it and it's familiar, uh, but it, it's one of the more difficult passages because Jesus is very, as he usually is, is very confrontive and how he approaches our response to him and particularly a, a certain group of people and how that reflects on when he returns and ultimately the judgment that all of us will face. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read, I'm going to start in verse 31, I'll read to verse 46, and then we'll walk through this passage together and ask some questions that we need to answer this morning. So Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Wow. Those are the words of Jesus. What is Jesus saying there? There's a lot that he's saying there, but remember the context we're at. Jesus is coming back someday. This is his return. He's going to come back, and so he's telling us this is what the judgment's going to look like. There's going to be this, this scenario that unfolds once Jesus returns, and all of humanity will now be brought before him in accountability to him for their lives, and there will be this judgment. He will sit on a throne that's prepared for the king because he is the king, and he is the Lord of lords of all. So he's the one that we're accountable to. And then he'll begin to describe for you and I, he's describing kind of this image that, of course, remember, in the culture at that time, when Jesus starts talking about sheep and goats, everybody clicks. They're like, oh, yeah, I know. I know the sheep and goats kind of thing. See, for, for people who lived in the day, day and age when Jesus was, that was one way that many people made their money. And if you didn't, you were very familiar with the difference between sheeps and, sheep and goats. They're, they're very different, but there's some similarities. Many times what shepherds would do in Jesus' day is that they would actually herd sheep and goats together. They would keep them together so they could have kind of a, a, you know, two groups in one herd so that they could make it more effective in terms of uh, where they go. And so they have sheep and goats. But because a sheep or a lamb and a goat are very different in their kind of their personality and especially in their temperament, is that goats tend to be a little bit more grumpy and independent and stiff-necked. And sheep are a little bit more compliant for the most part. Probably not as smart, but they're more compliant. They're more easygoing. So what shepherds, what they would literally do is during the time where there was feeding or when they were sleeping, they would separate the sheep from the goats. Because in the middle of eating, the goats would take over and control things. In sleeping, the goats would be a little bit rambunctious. And so they would separate those times. And so when Jesus talked about a separating of the sheep and the goats, everybody knew what he was talking about. There was distinctly different kind of understandings of each of those animals. And so he uses that illustration as a parable again to explain when the end comes, there will be sheep and there will be goats, and they will be separated, and it won't just be for feeding time, and it won't just be for sleeping time. It will be forever. And that's one of the questions that we'll talk about today. Where are we going to end up? Are we on the right or the left? Are we a sheep or are we, are we a goat? So look at verse 40 and 45. I want to walk through the passage because this is a tough passage to handle. You know, again, if it was our personal preference, we would skip to the nice, flowery, easy passages that we don't really have to understand. But when you and I look at this, we have to kind of unpack it to say, okay, what is Jesus saying? The first question that you and I need to, to answer and really understand is, who are the least of these? 
When Jesus says, listen, it all comes down to the least of these and understanding that, who, who are these people? And Jesus says in verse 40, So the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then 45, he says, What you didn't do or did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So what is the answer to this? So the, the normal default when we read this passage is that what we will, we will say is normally Jesus is just defining the poor. So basically, if you, we take that kind of understanding that what Jesus is talking about is the poor, then the next leap is ultimately all of humanity, all of human history comes down to one issue. How do you treat poor people? That's kind of the next leap. So if you're, you're caring for the poor and you have compassion for the poor and you give to them and you clothe them and you feed them and you do what Jesus says, then you get in. But wait a second. There's more to the story. Look at back at verse 40. Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, and then he says, brothers and sisters. That is a huge phrase of what Jesus is saying because he's narrowing the field from just the broad understanding of the poor to the poor who are brothers and sisters of mine. Who is he talking about in this passage? Most likely who he's talking about are brothers and sisters who know Jesus. Now, hear me, because many times this is the passage of all passages that everybody reads to say, hey, you need to care for the poor. You know, there's about a gazillion other passages in the Bible that says we should care for the poor. But this is one that really is more specific to people who around the world and in our own context who follow Jesus, who are finding themselves in places of persecution, suffering, poverty, sickness, imprisonment. And those are the ones he's saying, listen, it's when you see them in that place, how do you respond? So he's making it very, very, very specific. Now, in, in, our, in our world today, think about where are those people? Well, right off the bat, in the world right now, where are their brothers and sisters who may be following Jesus who are suffering greatly in the world today? Syria, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, I mean, Middle East. It, it's happening all the time. I mean, the, the stuff that's happening, we don't even get just a little bit of what's really happening in Syria and Iraq right now with the persecution and the beheadings and the torture of what's going on towards Christians. They're living in that. Those are the people that Jesus is talking about. Locally, there are people, anybody who's struggling and is, re, is meeting resistance and following Jesus is considered someone who's experiencing suffering or persecution. That could be people around us. That could be people that, people that are going through difficult times. When, when, when I, I had the chance to, to go to China uh, last October, um, a year ago October, and I got to see the least of these. I got to hang out with people who are meeting in their homes because they can't have a public worship gathering that are being persecuted, have been persecuted for decades by, by their government. Now, slowly, things are loosening up, but people who literally have had to give up everything to follow Jesus, those are the least of these. When we were in Haiti, that, that Steve mentioned, the team that we sent to Haiti this last August, when we're working with the church that is living in poverty and they're suffering and they've gone through an earthquake four years ago and we see all that, that uh, those are the least of these. That's the definition that Jesus is trying to explain. And why is that so important? Because normally what you will find when there is someone who's a follower of Jesus and they're suffering, also what you find is the gospels being advanced. So what you're doing by caring for the least of these is not only you're showing compassion for your brother and sister in the Lord, but you're also helping them to see the gospel advanced through their lives. That's incredible. That you and I get the privilege of not just investing in another human being, but investing in someone who God is using. That's the beauty of persecution. We don't like to talk about persecution, but that's what, in, in the halfway through Matthew 5, we talked about persecution persecution brings the growth and the expanse of the gospel. It does worldwide. China is ridiculous. There are more estimate, more Christians in China now that there are, than there are in the United States. One over the last probably 50 years, one of the most oppressive, controlling governments in the world that literally outlaw, outlawed Christianity and sent all the missionaries out of the country now has become the fastest growing church in the world. How is that possible? Because there's a whole lot of the least of these living in China and have given everything to follow Jesus. So we should be praying for them, supporting them. And I've said this before, give it another two decades. You know, you and I are going to hear coming out of the country of Iran the same thing. But because it's a Muslim nation, people who are getting saved aren't making it public yet because they literally will lose their life. But where there's persecution, where there's, where there's suffering, where there's pain, which is we're like, we don't like that stuff, that's where the gospel spreads. 
And that's why Jesus says the way that you respond to your brothers and sisters who are experiencing that, where the gospel is expanding and growing, and people are coming to Jesus and lives are being transformed, has a lot to do with your understanding of eternity and my return. Second thing, I know these are not easy questions, and we'll get more specific on this because some of you I know you're already thinking, and I know what you're thinking, and we'll get there. Some of you are thinking, I don't even know what he's saying. I don't even know what I'm thinking this morning. So look at verse 34 and then verse 46. The next question is, who are the sheep and where do they go? So verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then verse 46, he says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So Jesus, again, he's separated. He's got sheep and goats, right and left. So the sheep, they're on his right. So he's defining for you and I, if you fall into the category of sheep, the righteous, what do you and I experience? He's talking about people who know him. The, the, the term righteous is, it refers to somebody who's not righteous in their own ability, but somebody who's righteous because they understood the only way they become righteous is through Jesus' death on the cross and the exchange of their sin for his forgiveness. So he's talking about not perfect people. It's like, okay, the person who never did anything wrong and they were perfect, that's the right. No, he's talking about the righteous positionally because of what Jesus did on the cross because there is, Romans 3 makes it clear, there is none righteous. There's none. There's no perfect person except for Jesus. And because of his death for you and I and he's paying for the sin on the cross, you and I now, as the Bible tells us, that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and he'll forgive us. And he will cleanse us from everything that's unrighteous in our life. So it's those who have trusted in Jesus, those who follow Jesus with life. That's the righteous. That's the sheep. And, and ultimately, what do they get to experience? But it says, but the righteous to eternal life. So after this judgment, then the righteous get to go on to eternity, which is eternity with God. Let me read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is so important. This, is the, this captures where our, what our eternity looks like. This is what God is moving us towards. So it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of, the, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now just, just, from, just let that settle in, what, what's, what Jesus is, what's being described in the book of Revelation, this, this vision that's given to, to John. And so he's seeing the future, he's seeing what the church, what the people who follow Jesus are going to experience in eternity, which means all the stuff that consumes us, all the stuff that concerns us, all the stuff that weighs us down is now in a moment gone. Just think about this. Think about living and existing without the threat of death. Living and in, in existing without even the potential of pain, or sin, or sorrow, or mourning, or crying, or all the things that are true to the human condition. All those are gone. But what trumps all of that, and the reason all of that will happen for you and I, is because we will be his people, and he will be our God. What's being described there is what Adam and Eve had in the garden back at the beginning of all things. Remember, they live face to face with God. There was no sin between them and God. Therefore, it's crazy that the God of the universe would actually come walking in the garden. They would have face to face conversations with the God of the universe. They were in a perfect state. There was no separation. They were living out the fulfillment of why they were created. Adam and Eve were created to be with God. And all of us are created to be with God. And I've said this before, but the unfolding of all of human history comes down to one concept. The God of the universe loves us so much, he desires to be with us forever. But because of our sin, we have disqualified ourselves from being with him. Made it impossible apart from Jesus' sacrifice that takes away our sin so that we could be with him forever. That's where the righteous go. That's where the sheep go. That's where we're headed. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, that is exciting. That's why when Jesus comes back, it shouldn't, it's going to be this mixture of like terror and excitement at the same time. Oh my goodness, he's coming back. Oh my goodness, he's coming back. This is really cool. It's kind of exciting. Right? Yeah. I'm excited. And I had just a little coffee, so I know it's more than caffeine this morning. Okay? 
But if you and I just, just think about that, that's why Jesus is saying, listen, when I separate the sheep and the goats, and when I, when I look at the sheep, those are the ones... They're the ones that have chosen to follow me. Those are the ones that have made it through persecution. Those are the ones that have been faithful. Those are the ones that have trusted in me for my righteousness and not their own righteousness. And then they get to enjoy my presence forever. Leaving behind the shell of humanity of what we used to be and being resurrected to what originally we were supposed to be like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were designed just like all of us not to die but to live forever. We get a resurrected body that gives us that capacity in the presence of God forever. Third thing, look at verse 41, then verse 46. So who are the goats and where do they go? Verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. Verse 46 46 says, So who are the goats? They're cursed. They're the unrighteous. They're the ones who, in their lifetime, chose to reject God and reject Jesus and and decided to go their own way. And that group of people that, that Jesus is describing in terms of the goats, they may be people that outwardly you could say, yeah, they're... They're a pretty horrific person. They've done some really bad stuff. They deserve it. There's also going to be a lot of people that you look at the outside and think, wow, I I thought they were a believer. I I thought they were a really good person. I thought for sure they would be a sheep. I I thought for sure they'd end up on the right side. But they're over on the left. And and why is that? Because no matter how good a person is, is if they don't trust in Jesus for their righteousness, their righteousness will never be good enough. And so they'll be separated out And Jesus used the word depart, and depart has to do with this eternal state of separation. And this is is the thing that is the scariest. The, The greatest pain of the human heart is isolation. It's separation. In this room right now, probably the majority of us have experienced some kind of loss, depending on our age, of a very close loved one or a friend. The sting of death is separation. It's the pain of not being able to be with somebody. And when Jesus says depart, that means they will be separated out forever apart from the presence of God, which is what they were designed to be, that we are designed to be in the presence of God. But that separation happens, and therefore the greatest agony of what Jesus describes, eternal punishment that's also prepared for the devil and his angels, is this complete separation. We think, well, well, is because it talks about the lake of fire in Revelation, so it's like hell is really hot. There's something worse than physical pain caused by heat. It's the torment of the soul that knows that for eternity it's separated from the one that created it. In fact, Jesus explains a little bit. He gives a bit, little bit of a picture in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 to 26. He's Again, he's telling this as a parable, but he's using it as an illustration to demonstrate what it looks like after we die. He said, a time came when the beggar died and an angel carried him to Abraham's bosom. So he's telling a story about a rich man and then a man named Lazarus who was poor. In this world, the rich man had everything. Lazarus, the poor man, had nothing. So then he goes on. He says, the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his tongue in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that cannot be set or can, uh, has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot and or nor can anyone cross over from there to us. That's the key right there. There is this division that no matter how much you desire to be where you want to be, you cannot be there. You can't. Because God is, has this separation. And there's no hope. Can you imagine never having the hope that anything is ever going to change? That your state will be constant and will be eternal. That's scary. And that's where people take a step back and say, Well, how can, how can a loving God, how can a compassionate God send somebody to hell? Understand, it is a choice that every human being makes. It is not something that God suddenly arbitrarily just, okay, some are sheep, some are goats, let's just, no, it's not it. Because the ultimate outcome of hell, the ultimate outcome of eternal punishment is our decision to reject God every day in this life so he gives us what we've chosen in, the, in eternity. 
We rejected him once. Now forever we get what we desired. That's scary. That's why letting people know about how much God loves them and the truth of the gospel and living a life of mission and reaching out to our neighbors and people in our city and going to Haiti and going to Brazil and going to wherever God calls us to is, is so important. Why? Because people need to know. Because they face that reality. That's the reality that they're going to have to come to grips with. Now the, the fourth question. Will I be on the right or the left? Verse 32, 33, all nations will be gathered before him. Again, that concept of nations. So all people groups, everybody's before him. And he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So there's this separation. Where am I going to end up? Now, all of us, we would desire to say, yeah, I'm going to be on the right. And we have different criteria of why we would defend that position. Go to church. I was raised in a Christian home. Some of us, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 5 or 10 years old or whatever. We have all these different things, but the bottom line is, do I personally know Jesus and have I chosen to follow him every day of my life? Have I, re- have I re- made sure I, re- would I would respond to what he said to me and then rely on his sacrifice for me every day of my life, not trying to be righteous on my own, which means my life looks different than anybody else's and looks different than what I used to be before. Where will I end up, on the right or the left? Now, let me go back to what, something maybe swirling around the question. So, here's the thing. So, if Jesus, if you read this passage, okay. So, the goats didn't care for the least of these, they're out of there. The sheep cared for the least of these, they're in. So, if we go with that criteria, then we come up with this assumption. My salvation, my getting into heaven, my getting into eternity with God, all comes down to works. How I treat the poor who know Jesus. If you and I take that kind of interpretation, then we have to throw out the rest of Scripture. Because what that says is my salvation is based on how I perform. And if that's true, then all of us are dead in the water. There's no hope. So we can't have that interpretation of this passage. Otherwise, we throw out all the other passages, especially when Paul talks about how we've been saved by grace through faith. Grace is unmerited a decision that God chooses to bless us, not because of us, but because he chose us. And so there's this tension with that. So, so what is Jesus really saying? Because it seems to be saying if, if we don't clothe the hungry and we don't care for the sick and we don't go visit people in prison and we, go, we don't make sure that people are thirsty, get something to drink, those who know Jesus, if we don't do those things, then we're out. What is Jesus describing here? He's not describing justification for your salvation. He's describing what it looks like when you already are saved. That's what he's describing. So he's saying to the sheep and to the goats, he's saying, if you knew me and you followed me, then you would care for the least of these. Not, oh, because if you and I misunderstand this, what a lot of people will go leave this message and think, man, I got to go do more. I got to go find the least of these. I got to go to China. I got to care for them. Otherwise, the last day I'm going to be separate. I'm going to be a goat and I'm going to be left out. And here's the, this is the, the question you and I have to come, come to in this. That if Jesus is saying, I don't have, it's not me performing and doing these things, then I take a step back and I ask a deeper question. If I'm not doing these things in my life, why not? Why am I not caring for the least of these? Why do I not have compassion for people like that? Why am I not doing that? Because it's not about a performance. It's stepping back and saying this. Do I really know Jesus? Or have I lived in this illusion for so many years that I thought I knew what it meant to be a Christian because I define for myself what that looks like. Most of us do. We have our own definition. And that's why we keep going back to Jesus. What did Jesus say? He's the one that defines it for us. So in my life, when I see something deficient and I read something in Scripture that says you should be doing this and I'm not doing it, I don't go out and try to do it better so that God will love me. I take a step back and say, why am I, why am I not defaulting to doing that in my life? What is deficient in my understanding of who Jesus is that I wouldn't want to be doing that, that I'm not compelled to do that? Because what he's describing is something you and I would actually want to do. The difference between the sheep and the goats really comes down to this concept of when. Because they both said that. It's like, so when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison or sick? When, when did all this happen? And the difference between the two is the goats never saw the need while the sheep saw it every day. 
See, because that's what Jesus says. It's when this happened. And they didn't see it. The goats didn't see what was in front of them. They didn't see the need. They didn't respond because they weren't looking for it. Where the sheep, on the other hand, they saw it because they were looking for it. See, most of the time in our life, the issue of vision, the issue of sight, is not that you and I are necessarily blind and can't see anything. It's that we are blind to certain things because we're not looking for them. And the the default for for sheep is that they were actually looking. They were seeing things around them. They were seeing people. They were seeing the needs. They were seeing broken people around them. And because of that, they responded. Whereas the the goats may have been really good, moral people who went to church and did good deeds every once in a while and read their Bible, but they cared less about people who were broken and suffering around them. Sheep and goats look a whole lot alike on the outside, but the motivation inside is very different. Do we see people around us? Do we see people? There's a, there's a great story, a gal named Danielle Strickland, who is a, uh, she's a captain in the Salvation Army in, in Canada. She shares an amazing story about how God opened her eyes to seeing what she wasn't seeing. She was flying in Africa, and she was coming back from a trip, and she got on a little, small little plane, and just before it was about to take off, uh, this Muslim family came on, and there was like one seat next to her. And so this 16-year-old Muslim girl sits down next to her on the flight. So you've got a Muslim girl who's 16, and you've got this captain in the Salvation Army. It's like a pair, you know, a match made in heaven, right? So as Danielle's telling the story, it's pretty amazing. They start up this conversation to discover this girl who's 16 has just graduated from an Islamic school that her dad was the principal of. She's wearing a burqa, so you can't see your face. You can just see your eyes. And so they have this conversation. In fact, it was humorous about it. Is Danielle says, so what did you learn? She goes, well, we learned how to, I, she goes, I specialize in converting Christians to Islam. And Danielle, you should, I should probably play the video. She's hilarious. She's so funny. She goes, okay, well, I'm a Christian, so take your best shot. It's like, here's your graduation. You can do this. And so they have this long conversation. And she said she brings up some good points and everything. And so long story short, after they kind of start this friendship, this on this flight, the, the gal looks at Danielle and she says, do you want to see my face? She goes, what? She goes, yeah, do you, do you want to see what I look like? Now, remind you that the girl's mom is sitting like three or four rows back. She's not supposed to take off her work in, in public. She's not supposed to do that. She goes, Danielle goes, yeah, I'd love to see your face. So for just a moment, she pulls it back and she says, she's just a beautiful 16-year-old girl. And she says, and then she popped it back down real quick. And she remembers as she stepped back from that encounter, God said to her, do you really see people? Did you just see a burqa? Did you see a Muslim girl sitting next to you? Or did you see her for who she is? See, you and I don't have to be on a plane in Africa sitting next to someone who's Muslim to, to realize there are people every single day next to you, around you, that maybe they become common in such a way that we don't see them. I'll find myself in simple things. I'll sit at a stoplight and I'll start looking around at people. It freaks people out sometimes. But you ever done that? You're sitting in traffic. You look around. Nobody's happy. Everybody's looking forward. And you just look at people and I start praying for them. Jesus, do they know you? Is there someone in their life that's demonstrating who you, who you are to them? I see faces. I want to see people. I want to see needs. When I walk in my neighborhood, I don't want to walk by a human being and not acknowledge their presence. We have to see people around us. Why? Because when we see people, we see the needs. And when we see the needs, if Jesus has sent his spirit into our lives because we've, we've surrendered to him and our salvation is in him, then we will respond to the needs around us. If we aren't responding, we have to take a step back and say, what is wrong in my understanding of who Jesus is? Because that's not just something for the called. That's just not something for an organization. That's just not for a few crazy people who go down to the Dream Center or, or volunteer at the Samaritan Center or go into a laundromat. That's for every single human being that calls on Jesus to follow him. That is our responsibility. It's our responsibility. And then the, the fifth question is this. How do I respond to the physical needs of others? This gets really practical. Jesus says, hunger, thirst, clothing, and sickness. Those are like basic human issues. We all have to deal with those. So he's getting so specific in terms of how are we responding to the needs of people around us? 
If somebody is in need, are we responsive to that? If somebody's sick, are we responsive to that? Are they, if they're hungry, are we making sure that they have food? Are we caring for the needs of people? Why is this so important? If you go to Acts uh, chapter 2 and you read through all, obviously the rest of Acts, there's this amazing thing that was happening in the church. It actually says there was a period of time where nobody in the church had any needs. Because people in the church looked around and saw needs and met those needs. They would go sell land and property they had, and they would give the money to the apostles, and the apostles would distribute it to make sure that everybody's need. Can you imagine a community of people where every single need is met? That's supposed to be the church. That's caring for the least of these. That's, that's what Jesus was describing. So how do we respond to the brothers and sisters locally, globally, that are in pain, that are suffering, that we should be partnering with? Are we responding to their physical needs? It was interesting that happened something that happened about five, six years ago. When I was pastoring up in Oregon, I sat down for one of our church council meetings, which is the primary governing board of the church, and making decisions about finances. And just two days before, I had received a, an email from our district supervisor who oversees all the churches in that particular area for our denomination for Foursquare. And he said, hey, I just wanted the churches, wanted the pastors to be aware of a need um, that's, that's, that you might want to respond to somehow. And there was a, a pastor in our area who had been, for years, had been a Foursquare missionary. In fact, he had started a work in, in Germany and um, done amazing things and, and was there for 10 or 15 years. And then he came back to the States. He had some physical challenges. And then after pastoring in, in the U.S. for a little while, they discovered he had cancer. Uh, and so he was going to have to step down from being a pastor, and he had to have a surgery, and so, and he didn't have income, and so there was all these dynamics, kind of, this guy had given his life to follow Jesus, and now he was a place where he had given so much now, he didn't have anything left, he didn't have enough to support his family, because he had to quit being a pastor, and the church that he was at could only support him so much, and so all these dynamics, and so our supervisor is saying, hey, if there's anything that the churches in our district can do, please respond accordingly. So I walked into that council meeting that night, and, I, and it was one of the items on our agenda. And, and as I walked in, I thought, you know, it would probably be nice if we gave him $1,000. That would be really, I mean, that would go a long way. And if all these other churches gave him $1,000, you know, he'll do really well. And so I sat down, and, and, and the climate in our church at that time was encountering Jesus and, and really being rocked by Jesus. And what is it going to take? Are we really going to believe that we're all in? Are we going to really trust him? So sitting in that meeting, I said, okay, how about $1,000? And someone said, yeah, I think $1,000 is good. And someone else said, no, how about like three? And I'm like, all right, well, I'm looking at, you know, the budget and looking at things. And like, that's pretty good. So we're kind of kicking around. Then somebody, the, like the last person to chime in, said, I don't think that's enough. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. And at that time, we had about $140,000 in the bank. And council member looked at me and says, I think we need to tithe the bank account to this pastor. I'm like, What? He goes, yeah, I think we need to write a check for $14,000 to this pastor. And I remember when he said that, there was like this stunned reality in the room, and it was quiet. And then everybody started chiming in like, yeah. Are we really going to trust God? Are we really going to be generous? Are we going to care for the needs of people, especially someone who's given their life to follow Jesus and seen lots of people come to Christ, and now he's in need? Are we going to respond to that need? And that was a no-brainer. So the next day, we wrote a check for $14,000. As a result, that pastor, through the churches and relationships, ended up with about forty or $50,000 to get him through the next year of just people responding to his need. He went through the surgery. It was successful. He's cancer-free today. It's awesome. It's awesome. And by the way, the, the crazy thing is, is when we tied the bank account, $14,000 within the next three months, we had more. We recouped that and some. Our giving actually went up the next three months. Go figure covered more than that $14,000 that we wrote out of our account. Because what? We were caring for the least of these. One of our brothers was hurting, so we responded. The beautiful thing about New Hope is that heart is here as well. I've seen it in people. It's beautiful, the response to the needs of people in our church and in our community. Then the final thing is this. Final question, how do I respond to the relational needs of others? Jesus uses the phrase stranger and prisoner. Both of those are relational issues. The stranger and the prisoner. The stranger is the outsider. It's the person who doesn't know. They're the one that's kind of the outside looking in. 
It's, it's when, when somebody who, like the church overall, we use these terms, it's true, the church more and more in the United States has become marginalized, which we're no longer the center of society. We're on the margins now. We're on the outside looking in. And m- most of the church in the world has become that. And so how do we treat that? When we don't have the prominent place in society that we used to have, how do we treat people around us? Or how do we treat those who found themselves marginalized because of their faith? And the prisoner, which is someone who's obviously imprisoned, imprisoned and isolated because of their faith. How do we respond to those relational needs? How do we look at people who are, are experiencing that? The question you and I have to come to is how do we respond to people that we don't know? Or how do we respond to people that maybe we do know because we know their faces? How do we respond to the needs of people? Just think about this for a moment. When we... When we see that there's a need in the church, sometimes the, there's a default that says the church needs to make sure that we meet the needs of people. So the church being the pastor and the staff and the leadership. So somebody has a need, get an email, a phone call, a conversation. Hey, this person has a need. The church needs to take care of it. Who's the church? That's right. That's right. The church needs to take care of it. How is the church going to take care of it? Oh, well, it's the money that the, we give, right? You, yeah, that's part of it. There's benevolence needs, and we give to help benevolence needs. But, but usually, monetary is, is not the issue. It's, it's a relational need. It's somebody who's an outsider. It's somebody who is on the margin. It's somebody who needs help. And you know what they need probably as much as they need a check? Is they need a family. They need a friend. Let me give another plug. They need a community group. Community, I'm telling you, people are like, oh, man, you keep talking. Yeah, community groups. I'm telling you, John mentioned earlier, the groups that I know of that you guys had common meals, you had a blast. You know what it's like to hang out with a bunch of people? You're learning to love and you're growing in Jesus and you get to hang out and have social time together and just have a meal together. It's what Jesus described for his church. It's what they were doing in Acts chapter 2. They were, they, were having, they were breaking bread in their homes. They were spending time with each other. And it's great because anytime there's a need that comes up, there's a community that takes care of the need. And I've said this before, majority of all the people that come to the church, the official church, for their needs to be met, guess what? 99% of them are not in a community group. Very rarely does someone who's in a community group come and say, hey, I have a need. You know why? Because their need got met already. The church met their need. That's how we're supposed to live together. That's what Jesus is describing, how you respond to the stranger, the outsider. And even think about this in in our context here. How do we respond to the stranger sitting next to us on a Sunday morning? How do we respond? Hi, goodbye, handshake, maybe a hug. If that. Some of us want to come in and leave me alone. Don't want to talk to anybody around me. That's why I like my space. I like my seats around me. This is what Jesus is talking about. How about the person who walks into church on a Sunday morning and, and they don't know anybody? They go sit by themselves. Does anybody talk to them? I'm not pointing at anybody. That might be you this morning. You walked in here and except for a greeting time, maybe prayer, that's because it's like, oh, you have to. You know, Tim said I'm supposed to pray, so I guess I got to do that. Have we reached out to people? When we walk into service on a Sunday morning, when someone's sitting by themselves, do we go and talk to them? See, what what I'm describing is what Jesus is describing for the stranger and for the prisoner is this thing called hospitality. And hospitality is not a ministry. Hospitality is a way of life. Because hospitality is never about you. It's about the stranger. It's about the outsider. It's about being in a place where you welcome them. You make them feel like they belong, that they're a part. And that's, that's a way of life for the outsider. There may be someone who's struggling life and they walk into church and say, okay, well, we have greeters and ushers to greet them. No, we have the church to love them. That's why nobody should ever walk into one of our gatherings and feel isolated and alone if they're wanting to reach out. We should be embracing everyone, meeting different people, getting to know names, exchanging emails or phone numbers, whatever it is, getting outside of ourselves. Hospitality, making people feel welcome. I saw this demonstrated on a, on a church-wide level when I was growing up at Church on the Way in Van Nuys. I remember, can't remember how old I was, but I remember that there, when, when Idi Amin took over Uganda and was persecuting Christians, a number of them fled for their lives. They, they came to the United States, they went to different places, and some of them ended up in the San Fernando Valley running for their lives, displaced people. And I remember 
at the time, Jack Haver is the pastor, and we, as a church, we took in, I don't know how many people from Uganda, Christians from Uganda came and lived with people in the church. People found spare rooms to try to make sure. Why? Because they had nowhere to go. That's the stranger. That's the outsider. That's the prisoner. Then this is the church taking care of the church. So something happens in Uganda, and guess what? The church responds in Van Nuys, California. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the way that we should be functioning. And so when Jesus says to you and I, ultimately, at the end, when we're standing before him, he's going to ask, were you hospitable with other people? You don't have to necessarily host somebody from another country, but who is it around you that's struggling? Going through a difficult time, needs to be accepted, needs to be loved, needs to be challenged, needs to be cared for. Who is that? You don't even have to, you can look outside the church, even in our culture, because the nature of a believer is not just for believers, but it expands. How are we caring for the needs of people around us who are the outsider, who are marginalized, who are the stranger? How are we caring for those people? I'll tell you, the last year since Kim and I have been fostering, I'll tell you, sometimes in the middle of the night, it's not so fun. When the baby's crying, you can't get him to be quiet. But there's times I'll sit with whatever baby that we have and just pray and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this season of time, for this child. We get to love on them, we get to care for them, and we get to work towards reunifying with their family because you care deeply for them. There are opportunities all around us. It took Kim and I probably 10 to 12 years of conversation about fostering for God finally to say, open your eyes. What are you waiting for? It's like, duh, why don't you do this? It's been in there, finally got out. That's kind of the way God talks to me sometimes. He kind of takes, you know, like, wake up. I don't know what the wake-up call is for all of us, but the needs are there. It's are we going to respond? Are we going to be a people and a place and a community that follows Jesus that is given to hospitality? Making sure that people who are on the outside feel welcome. Let me close with this. In fact, I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come and and join us. We'll conclude with one last, last song. And we're coming to the end of this series. And we'll discover that there's other books outside the book of Matthew as we continue f- to move forward. But I'm going to ask you, I did this last week. I'm going to ask you once again, if you just go ahead and close your eyes. I want, uh, again, I want you to, to respond to what Jesus is saying to you. Not what did, was Pastor John's message good or what football game is on this afternoon. I want you to hear to Jesus speak to you right now. So we've been on this journey for 15 months, and in that 15-month period, we've experienced a lot of challenges in personal lives. We've, we've been becoming more healthy as a church, even though we've seen transition, and that always happens in transition, building transition, pastoral transition, all these things, and that, that's normal. But, but what God is up to in us is not about being a church that has thousands attending. If that's his will, he'll do it. It's not about being a church that offers great programs and outdoes other churches so that people come to kind of the Mecca. It's not about being cool and hip and trying to make sure that we're always on the cutting edge of whatever it is. But what God is doing in us is what he's been doing in his people for 2,000 years. He's getting them to die to themselves to be resurrected to follow him. And so for us as individuals and for us as a church, I've, I've said this phrase many times, God is not remodeling us, he's recreating us. And that means at a church-wide level and as a, at a personal level, what I want you to see right now is God is asking you, asking me, asking all of us to die to the way we used to be. That means dying to the life that maybe we've established a certain rhythm of coming to church and doing the good things and being comfortable and being controlled and safe and, and not risking anything and God's saying you need to die to that. Or maybe for some of us it's dying to the, the way the church used to be. That somehow going back to the way things used to be or restoring something from the past will somehow legitimize what God's doing. God's saying no, that is the past and the future looks different than the past so it's letting go of that and moving forward. 
But the most important thing, the power of the church is never seen in its pastor. It's never seen in its worship. It's never seen in its building. It's never seen in its programs. The power of the church is always seen in its people. The power and the future of New Hope is not in our location, our ministry style, our leader. It is in what Jesus is doing in every single person who calls this their church home. And that's why I want to challenge you today that you would hear the words of Jesus that when we stand before him someday, he's going to describe for you and I, this is what your life should have looked like. You, you should have cared for the least of these. You should have had compassion for people who were struggling. You should have had a way of life that was described by hospitality. You should have had those things, not because those are the checklists that I'm looking for so that you'll enter into eternity. What Jesus would say is, no, because that's the evidence of my work in your life. You're different. You've been transformed. You've been changed. You're not like the world that you live in because I have transformed you. That is what Jesus will be looking for in our lives. And so today, I'm, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to ask you that maybe for you, I don't know where you're at with the Lord, but the first, this maybe for the first time in your life, you've come to this place where you say, yeah, I want to make a commitment, not a mental decision, but a commitment to surrender my life, to follow Jesus, because I understand I want to be transformed. I understand that I am not righteous, that I am not perfect, and I need Jesus' forgiveness because he died on the cross to take all my sin, all my failure, put it on himself, and in exchange, he will give you his righteousness so that you will be on the right, that you will be one of the sheep. You will be the one that is righteous. And if you haven't made that commitment in your life, you can do that today. You just begin to tell Jesus right now in your own words, I want to follow you. I want to surrender my life to you. And then for the rest of us, I want to strongly encourage you. I don't, I don't know how long that you have called yourself a Christian, how long you've attended church, even how many times maybe you've read through the Bible. Coming down to today, I, I want you to, to go back to the place of saying, Jesus, do I really understand what it means to be a Christian? Have I come up with my own definition? Have I set up parameters that I'm trying to live out my version of Christianity? And when you ask him that, be willing to surrender and listen. And if he says no, it's bigger. No, it's more costly. No, it requires all of you. And no, the reward that you will receive is greater than anything that you could manufacture or you could work out on your own. And if he is asking you to surrender your own version of Christianity, allow that to die today. And so, Lord Jesus, in these moments and as we sing to, to, to come to kind of this culmination of the series that we've gone through, Lord, the, the greatest tragedy would be for us to walk away and do nothing. You talked about that in Matthew 7. Lord, the foundation of our lives is built on obedience to your word. That's, what the, that's where the house is built on the rock. So, Lord, we want to we move from this, forward from this series as people who are different, who follow you, who do things differently, who are motivated differently, who obey differently because you have encountered us. So, Lord Jesus, in us today, help us to see, help us to open our eyes, help us to respond to you in obedience so that, Lord, we are different because you have made us different as we surrender to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.